Hi, I'm Angela Sarno. And I'm Taylor Nemeth. And you always have such a dramatic pause before you say your name. And this is PaymentWorks Presents Risky Business. You threw me for a little loop. Your cadence on that intro was a little uh, different than normal. So I, I, I froze. <laughs> it was. You're right. You're right. Once again, exciting guests, but there's a, a little more excitement because we switched roles this time and I actually got to interview somebody. I hope I live up to the bar you have set with your previous interviews in what we played today. We both need to compare ourselves against the likes of Larry King and that sort of thing. <laughs> I don't know if we're anywhere close to that, but I suspect you did as good or probably better than I did. And Chris is an awesome first one for you to break that ice on. So Definitely. I interviewed Christopher Earhart, uh, who's a senior vice president at Chubb. And the reason we were able to rope him into our podcast is because he and Taylor and a gentleman named Scott Schmuckler, who's a lawyer at uh, Gordon Reese Scully and Mesk, oh, even practice saying this name, Manshukani, uh, wrote, recently published a white paper together called Guarding Against Email Social Engineering Fraud, Reexamining a Global Problem. So Taylor, as a co-author on here, why don't you just set us up a little bit before we actually go to the interview with Chris to talk more about it? Sure. Well, it was a fascinating process for us. It's it's mostly been something that we've kind of kept within our walls, not on purpose, just it's the problem, you know, we solve or exposed to quite often. So we're we're talking about statistics and ways to prevent it and so forth. So to go through it with a partner, especially one like Chubb, was really cool to get their perspective on on the whole process. And, you know, they have their huge, huge company and have a lot of resources in looking up and doing some of the research that was needed to compile the facts and the paper itself. And so it was it was fascinating just to see some of the stuff they came up with. The one thing that I'll note is, you know, a lot of the focus is, of course, on social engineering and, and, and cyber attacks and, and that sort of thing. But, you know, there, no matter how good you are at preventing that on the payer side, if your vendors are susceptible and have their emails been hacked, for example, it still puts you in a very bad spot. You can you can only control your own environment. You cannot control your vendor's environment. So you still need some solution to mitigate that. And I just think that was interesting. Yeah, the paper really spells out and we have a link to it in the podcast blurb and on the blog as well. Spells out how important all the IT parts, how important all the internal trainings are, but that there's still this blind spot, this hole when it comes to vendor impersonation or vendor email compromise. And I think we... Well, that's what we spend all our time thinking about. I'll just also give a shout out to Chris at Chubb for the end of the paper, um, which is reacting in the wake of fraud. We spend a lot of time trying to get our prospects and customers thinking about the process they go through to tighten the ship and protect the vendor master from this sort of compromise. But do they ever put the thought into what the process will be if there is a fraud? There's a much better chance of getting some money back if you react quickly. Uh, so think that through. If you don't yet have that process and you don't take anything else from this paper, skip to page eight and grab the reacting in the wake of fraud outline there. All right, then uh, I'm going to cut to the interview here with me talking to Christopher Earhart. Uh, everybody be gentle on me. It's my absolute first interview, uh, I, but he's pretty dazzling that I know. So I wanted to welcome to our Risky Business podcast, Christopher Earhart from Chubb. We'd just like to start with you telling us a little bit about yourself professionally, if you would. Well, I, I, my, uh, my role is as product manager for North American Financial Lines at Chubb Insurance. 
Uh, what does a product manager do? They manage all the aspects of the insurance products. And the products that I handle include crime insurance and financial fidelity and some of the specialty risk um, related to kidnap and extortion and other things that go bump in the night. You and uh, Taylor, uh, my podcast co-host, uh, along with uh, a legal mind, recently authored a white paper on social engineering fraud. And that is definitely what we wanted to talk to you about. Can you tell us where the idea even originated from? Where did the, the kernel come from to write this? Gosh, it, um, well, I thank you for, for having, having Taylor uh, mentioned there. He, he added a whole lot of, in, of good information on, from the, the payment side, the data stream that the USC at Payment Works. The kernel of the, the, the impetus, if you will, for the paper really stems from our customers' needs. As a, the leading crime insurer in North America, we have a unique insight into the claims process and the, and the types of losses that our insureds were suffering. And so, you know, starting in 2015 and progressing to the present, we'd looked at social engineering fraud and had developed coverage and, and reacted to these losses. But what we were noticing is that despite the explosion of losses, and, and the paper talks about the, this, and $28 billion over the last four or five years, according to public sources, the FBI, et cetera, uh, that number just pales the insurance marketplace for these products, speaking as a, as a product manager. So when the, when the losses well outstrip the premiums, ultimately something more is necessary, more knowledge, more training, more insight for customers to understand the exposure because uh, we're not seeing it uh, in the loss trends subside. So that's uh, your customer understanding. That is something I would love to dig in on. The The title of the paper is Guarding Against Email Social Engineering Fraud, Re-Examining a Global Problem. I think re-examining is a key part here. Uh, Chris, you and yeah. I just talked offline before we started recording that a lot of people think they've solved this problem. But when you have numbers like what you just threw out, $28 billion, and you have uh, the AFP saying that between like 74, 75% of organizations said, yes, someone tried to scam them last year, folks clearly don't have the process down or the, the problem solved the way a lot of them think they do. So I'd like to really drill in on the re-examining part of, of your title here, because that's really what happens in this paper. And you you walk away saying zero trust is the answer. And I don't know that people have gotten that message yet. I I hope that podcasts like this and the paper and, and the promotion that we do behind it will, will spurn some thoughts inside of risk managers and procurement officers, those that are that are in charge of the corporate lockbox, you know, the money that, that's there. Um, the because those are the folks that will see those losses, those are the folks that will have the responsibility to deal with the aftermath of, of having a business email compromise, um, whether you call it BEC or social engineering fraud, or payments fraud, really it all, it all comes down to the uh, impersonation of, of a counterparty, of the other party. So the re-examining component was 
reminding folks that there is a common thread to really all of these claims, these losses. Uh, and, it, and it stems from email. Email is inherently insecure. It is intended to be insecure. It was built that way. I don't think a lot of people and our readers understood this or understand this. The common user, the, the person that is not buried in the IT department, that is not versed with all of the, the technical protocols about how their email works, et cetera, but that the, the person, the user, what can they expect from email? And how email has allowed for these scams to, um, to really proliferate because of that inherent insecurity. So the, we re-examine this problem and try to point our, our, our customers, our insureds, the reader toward better solutions to reevaluate the process of payments rather than enforcing the people to simply do a better job. Oh, the infamous be careful. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Taylor and exactly. I r- really rail against that quite a lot. Well, um, when you look at, I mean, when you look at the, the sheer volume, the 28 billion, and you look at the number of, 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 of losses that have occurred, it, it doesn't take an actuary to realize that the law of large numbers says that any person that can be as careful as possible, but there is no, nothing is 100%. Nothing is 100%. That's impossible. So if there's even the smallest non-zero chance multiplied over the over a big enough number, mm. it will occur. And the average for that loss is $150,000 to a business. So the stakes are high. And because of the, the way that it's structured, we have, um, we have people that are relying on a process that used to work that now doesn't. Nice. I think that 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 sums it up, actually. So reading this uh, white paper, and folks, we will have the link uh, in the blog and in the podcast for it uh, to get to it. What what surprised you during during your research? Or what is the what is the nugget that made you say, ah, that? This is an easy one. Oh, I thought you were going to ask me hard questions. (laughs) Um, the nugget that really got me was the insight that, that Taylor and payment works brought forward regarding how many companies, and I say companies because everybody's a supplier to somebody else. Everybody is expecting to get paid. If you're doing a business other than a not-for-profit, you know, you're expecting to get paid and even a not-for-profit will expect to get paid. They need donations, et cetera. So everyone has this this uh, interaction with money uh, in our in our economy the the insight as to the number of entities or companies that change a piece of data critical business data related to that money that makes the world go round 30 percent annually was the number coming out of payment works um, as to the number of, of companies that were making that change. So if you overlay that, and I'm a numbers guy, and as an underwriter, you know our job is to analyze risk, look at, at frequencies, how often does something happen, how, how big is it, how, what severity is, and then calculate that to determine 
premiums and, and coverage. And that's, that's my profession. Um, when you look at that number, 30%, you start to say, even in a midsize, not to mention enterprise, but on a midsize uh, enterprise-based cost, uh, company with 250 or $300 million in revenue, uh, may have potentially thousands of suppliers, depending on the industry. Take 30% on top of that. Divide that by the number of weeks and the number of AP people. How many changes are coming at that person every week, every day? You can break it down as many times as you want. But at the end of the day, that if the process is built around that person uh, requiring to either check an email, make sure it's okay, check with somebody else to make sure they know the person, or simply send a form and expect that form to come back, the law of large numbers on my side will say it will fail. So what did I, what, what's my insight is 20, $26 or $28 billion is actually uh, not a surprise any longer. Ah, When people throw around numbers like that, I often think the more zeros, the more unrelatable it, it becomes. Um, but when you say $150,000 per instance, that, that could really mean something to, to your average AP person. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It, it, it is, we end up desensitized to these numbers, but it makes sense if you break them down yeah. into component parts. So that's what the 30% does is it says, you know, how often, you know, take the number of suppliers that you've got. Now take 30% of those. How many is that? All of those are change requests. How many hours does it take for that person to deal with that change request? Multiply that times their hourly salary or whatever their benefits are, et cetera. Now you know the cost of how much it costs you to deal with a supplier, again, that you're paying, not the other way around. (laughs) It's your money. It's costing you to spend money. There's, you mentioned this a little bit earlier. I think one of the things that we run into talking to, to prospects about is the idea that a problem like this is solved by what we think of as traditional cybersecurity, like those layers of IT in front of email. Um, Taylor really sums it up for me when he says that all this comes down to somebody tricking somebody into changing something in the vendor master. And all the IT in the world isn't actually a match for a human getting tricked. So... Let me begin by saying that that good cybersecurity, firewalls, SPF, you know, DKM, DMARC, all these terms I'm throwing at you. And for the for the listeners, you know, you may say, what on earth is he talking about? Read the paper. It talks about what those things are. Um, they're ubiquitous. You can get them with virtually every email ser- uh, provider unless you've created your own homegrown email, which, you, which most would not do. Uh, you're getting it from a supplier. They can provide those things. They're pretty standard, and they are critical. They are number. They are absolutely 100% critical. Uh, we talk about them in the paper, and we talk about that their importance in uh, ensuring that forged email, email that that looks like it's coming from one person, but it's actually coming from somebody else. We'll call that a forged email. Is prevented from entering into your system. It's just kicked out saying that there is nothing 
that is legitimate about this it make that should let it in and that actually is, is is a good thing and it really keeps out a whole lot of really kind of low level bad actors um your standard spoofing type of of scenario it it really helps with that and you can you can have that on on a hardware device you can have that in software uh, for IT people listening, you know you can you can subscribe if if you utilize um, Microsoft Office 365 or, or similar protocols. You can subscribe to those services and turn them on and and do that because oftentimes they're not turned on by default. Right back to the fundamentally insecure beginnings. Correct. The most nefarious type of 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 email compromise and and risk and i have another piece that that we've authored at jump and you can go look there or maybe you'll you'll host it if you would um would be a um, email takeover and i'm definitely seeing a rise in email takeover from the perspective of the supplier the supplier's email for lack of a better term has been hacked right it's been taken over so all your IT in the world doesn't actually prevent your suppliers, right? It does nothing because that email, once you're inside that supplier's email, we'll, t- we'll call that a counterparty, the other party, that person, that email will come through as legitimate. There's nothing inside that email that any IT system, and I can be pretty confident in saying this actually, because um, it's a bold statement. There is there is no technology that will screen for an, a, an account takeover email that will say that there is an inherent aspect of this email that is 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 bad. I can see that it was taken over and I'm going to prevent it from coming in. Yeah. So, so with that, the best security in the world on the front end, and if the email is actually coming through, if I'm in um, an analogy would be, a, we're trying to get into Langley, and they have a scanner from license plates and I steal some agent's car and I drive the car up to Langley and they scan my license plate and they go through. Yeah. I'm in. You're in. The car is supposed to be there. The driver is not. The email inside is not supposed to be there. That, our, our last podcast guest talked a lot about identification, authentication, and authorization. And how yes. there's three different things, and you just hit it with that Langley as well um, yes. analogy. So that is that is the nefarious, and I'll take one one more to go further. Then once inside, I don't know about you, but I'm looking at my email of seven thousand items, seven thousand items, some read, some unread, attachments, all kinds of stuff galore. If I get into the right email because I'll, I'm fishing people, if I'm bad guy, I'm fishing accounts payable people, mm-hmm. or um, they have to go and pay, I'm paying, or receivables, same thing. Um, so often the same person, but uh, hopefully not. That email box will have enough information in it to take an invoice, put it into Adobe PDF software, edit it, make it look exactly the same, and then send it back over from the legitimate email address. It may also contain the forms that are required for you to fill out. Um, 
copies of, of other documents that have signatures on them. This is not stuff of, 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 of espionage. It's pretty basic. Mm. We don't have clean email boxes. That would also do, but no one's going to do that. <laughs> no, I've tried. It doesn't, I, it's very difficult. And that's what we see in, in the frauds that we catch. We often see, they'll even go a step further, Chris, and they will use an email correspondence that's already in action and reply to it. So you have the whole thread of the conversation with just the update for the bank account. Sorry. That's the one. That's the easiest one. The thing's already <laughs> happening. Yeah. And that's really just super easy fodder. Not even stuff that's that's sort of the higher um, com- complexity of a third enter a third party enters the chat. You know, now I'm talking and I'm a lawyer and I'm a this. I that the, you asked earlier why we wrote this paper. It's and I didn't really end up with the final sentence, which is we, we wrote this paper because we continue to see the losses happening and, and that no one was writing to the most common type of, of, of loss. The things that you see over and payment work sees the fraud events over and over when you catch them, um, you know, over and over again, it's the same thing. You just said it right now. Oh, it's like this over and over and over and over and over again. The press, especially IT press and other press that's that's out there talking about these things, they really gravitate toward the unique, the interesting, the the risque or like, oh, it's, you know, the death of two-factor authentication. The next thing we're going to use is our blood type. Like it's, you, you just cringe when you look at headlines like that because it's almost misinformation. It says, you know, don't bother with two-factor authentication. They got that beat too. When in reality, 90 plus percent of frauds are stopped in, in account takeovers because you've turned on multi-factor authentication on the other side. So we wrote a piece as insurers, as an insurer to say, look, these are the big things. These are the things you really have to worry about. Focus on the fundamentals and the basics. These are the basics but they're not dumbed down. They are, they speak to the the vast majority of the issues. We leave the fringe cases to the side. Yes, you're right. If it's uh, sometimes you can just tackle the big obvious one. <laughs> it, it doesn't get the press you're talking about. Okay. So it, what is the one thing? It's my last question for you. What's the number one thing you wish your policyholders understood about social engineering scams as it relates to coverage? Because you've definitely told them lots of things you hope they wish they knew about it, but as it relates to their insurance coverage. I would encourage folks to think less about insurance as a, a replacement for the process or a backstop for the, for the people that have to implement that process. Back to the numbers, $28 billion over the last four or five years. The other number I didn't give you is $1.2 billion. $1.2 billion is the total premium associated with crime and fidelity insurance in North America on average, about. It's the Surety and Fidelity Association of America. There's my citation there. Um, you go to there, we're members there. You can ask them and they'll give you that number, $1.1, $1.2 billion. 
act, it does take an actuary to see that it's multiples of the entire marketplace. So the expectation that insurance will be backstopping the employee who has to fuddle through all of these changes. And if she or he misses one, it's, you know, the insurance is going to cover you. That is quickly diminishing and will end up being probably non-existent because without a controlled process, underwriters can't insure something. So I want folks to understand that insurance deals with controlled processes, not uncontrolled processes. No different than the application process when you get asked questions. We ask about controls. We ask about what you do, how you do it, and uncontrolled processes, the ones that lead to these claims, are quickly becoming uninsurable. Mm, That would be painful. And I know some people find that out too late along the way. Yes. So I encourage everybody to, again, go back and look at your process and determine, can this process be beat? Or more importantly, how would I beat this process? And if you can, if you can beat it with a taken over email account or the, or even, even a dishonest employee, which we didn't get into, maybe we'll do that in another. There we go. Part two part two, if you can beat your process that way, then it's time to reevaluate that process. Thank you so much for the time and for those thoughts. We really appreciate you sharing them. Ah, Great to be here. Thanks for having me. A big thank you to Chris Earhart for that. And I have to tell you all, we talked a long time. It took some effort to pare it down to a podcast. I could have probably gotten three podcasts out of that interview. He he knows a lot. Angela, you nailed it. That was that was excellent. That was excellent. I even I you should start we should 50/50 these now. Um careful there. I might get a little too big for my britches. But here, why don't you humble me with our favorite part of every podcast? Guess that vendor. Okay. It's my favorite part. I don't know if you're being nice and hopefully most people don't tune out by this point, but guess that vendor. I think there's probably a couple companies that are going to come to mind when I go through these clues. I'm trying to make it a little more simple than I I have in the past. So uh, this company started in 1918 as a light bulb socket manufacturer by the Mats... I'm going to butcher this. The Matsushita family. Okay. Uh, Japanese, uh, which is is key and might help you uh, figure out the company. Uh, the founder at the time was all, uh, it was the, the family. It was a, the tw- a 23-year-old and, and two other, I'm assuming, siblings uh, because they were 22 and 15. That's how this company started. Wow. Uh, they were the largest maker of consumer electronics in the world in the late 20th century. So big, big company, well-known brand. Uh, they do everything from appliances to home renovations, smart cities, car electronics, avionics, telephones, healthcare technology, technology, semiconductors. I actually happen to have one of their telephones uh, landlines. Yes, I have a landline right in front of me. 
And uh, today, they're you know, one of the largest companies in the world with subsidiaries, uh, well-known subsidiaries such as JVC, Sanyo, and others. I love it when companies this big and amazing are in our vendor network. It makes me very happy. Yeah. Headquartered in Osaka, Japan, I should say. Osaka, Japan. I'm not sure that gives it away, but just for... <laughs> well, I, I hope... I hope I'm right when I say Mitsubishi. No, excellent guess. I thought there was another. Um, do you have what? one more guess? We'll give you. We'll give you two guesses. It's okay if you don't. Samsung. No, no, they're. Oh, come on. That's um, South Korean. They. they uh, oh, it is. It is. That's right. You said Sanyo, and Samsung got stuck in my head. I thought. I thought you were gonna guess Yamaha. Um, it was not Yamaha. It is Panasonic. Oh, <laughs> JVC. Yes, yes, Panasonic. Yes, Panasonic. Yeah, they're a huge, huge company that um, I found interesting when I was doing the research. Once again, I will tell you I need to start reading the business section a little more carefully. Yeah, you'll get it. How embarrassing. All right. See, the humble pie. I'm down from the high. I was on a high for my interview, and you brought me back down to earth. Thank you very much. Sorry. 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 It's your job. Uh, all right. Uh, until next time, where we have yet another exciting conversation in the works um, with the chief risk officer. I'm super excited about that one. We'll talk to you then. See ya. See ya.